Welcome back. This is Spaghetti for Brains. My name is Ben. I'm the grocer of despair. This week, I've got a guest. It's uh, the first time I've had a guest on the podcast. And it's my friend Norm, who is a very funny guy. He's a comedian. And he's also a political organizer. He has been for a number of years. And he's from Connecticut, which is the last place I lived before I moved over to this side of the Atlantic. And before I moved in 2003, Norm and I were active together in the anti-war movement there in Connecticut. We uh, took part in a lot of protests and wrote about the anti-war movement in Connecticut. And we also worked together for a community group that worked on campaign finance reform in Connecticut. And now I just thought it would be a good time to talk to Norm again and have him on here and ask him a little bit about what he thinks about the current situation in the States politically and economically with the coronavirus, with Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign. It's something I've written about a lot in the newsletter, but I wanted to get someone else's perspective because we have uh, very similar opinions in many ways, but he's there and I'm over here and I wanted to see what the similarities and the differences were. So I asked him to give me just a rundown of what he thought the situation was and where we could improve in future if we're running a campaign, if we're even bothering to get involved in electoral politics anymore, and what kind of organizing needed to be done. So luckily for us, Norm was around. Just a little warning, the internet connection here has been a bit bad here in Glasgow. Maybe not in Glasgow generally, but in my flat it has. So while you're listening to this, you might notice that there's a little bit of interference and static because the internet is kind of cutting out and dipping while Norm is talking. And there's a few points at which it makes it a little bit difficult to hear what he's saying. So I do apologize for the technical difficulties. And then on top of that, there's the fact that my laptop is just a crumbling old piece of shit. And uh, that's where a lot of the static comes from, I think, is that my failing computer can't really deal with uh, all of that information going into it at once and recording it at the same time. So my apologies. A reborn Christ is nothing to write home about. Maybe if he had kept the money lenders out. There might be some kind of urgency to the show To love my neighbor like I love exonerating doubts Was blinded now that I can see I see the townsfolk laugh at me Cause I don't look like them You haven't cured their blindness Now, I will introduce myself. My name's Norm. I'm a friend of Ben's. Uh, I've been a political organizer for about 15 years uh, and really active long before that. Ben and I protested the disaster Iraq war together. And uh, now I spend most of my time uh, yearning to be able to do improv comedy at the at a comedy theater that I'm part of um, and wanting to get more politically active but 
prime comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, uh, maybe we should just give a little bit of background. So, Norm, where are you right now? You're in Stamford, Connecticut. The belly of the beast. Um, I, uh, yeah, am surprisingly adjacent to all manner of world events. Uh, Connecticut is, specifically Stamford, is uh, the biggest commuter town to the place where the virus is worse in the corona COVID-19 virus is worse than America, New York City. Uh, and so Stanford is one of the worst cities there are around here. Um, one of the worst in what ter- in what way? You mean like in terms of people, uh, of cases of COVID-19? Yeah, certainly in Connecticut. If you look at the map of Connecticut, Fairfield County, which is the part closest to New York, has like 85% of the cases Mm-hmm. in Connecticut. Uh, and so Stanford has been like converting their hospitals to all be like ICUs and like, you know, they like shut down one hospital completely and like completely change are changing it with like the Army Corps of Engineers and stuff like that. Um, they're not like overrun yet or anything and kind of neither is New York. New York's just low on supplies. Really? Because I, I thought, I was under the impression that they had uh, some kind of shortage because I, I'd heard on Twitter, <clears throat> people I follow on Twitter were talking about receiving one of those text messages through their phones that was like, uh, that goes to like every phone in the area. Uh, that's like a thing you don't really get here. But do you know what I mean? Like, and they'd said, is anyone a doctor or a nurse? As though they were in like a, a movie theater being like, is anyone a doctor? You know, sending a text to everyone's phone. Yeah, no, I heard about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, uh, they're not like overrun the way that it was in Italy, you know. Um, they, they just don't have what they would want. There is a critical lack of protective equipment so people aren't doing like a lot of this stuff you're supposed to use it once and that's not like once per shift you know that's once per thing you do mm-hmm. you know per time that you interact with a patient mm-hmm. you're supposed to get a whole new set of gloves mask face shield little you know like body cover thing yeah uh and that's not happening. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's happening in the ICUs. I think it might be happening in the actual ICUs. Um, but uh, in a lot of other places, people have to reuse their stuff and or just make it themselves, particularly masks. Yeah. And so... There was a similar certain- situation here, despite the fact that we have a National Health Service... But because obviously, <clears throat> I guess there's a matter of degrees in which a government can mismanage a crisis like this. And <clears throat> in the States, with ha- having the, the privatized healthcare system, I'm sure that that's presented disastrous uh, inequalities in, in regions and in different types of hospitals and, and people with different degrees of cover, like healthcare cover. But in the, in, in the UK, because of the NHS, you have, uh, I think... The problem has been 
that they haven't got enough PPE. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the government here has done recently uh, to address not the actual situation of them not having enough PPE, but the, the PR situation of what it looks like for them not having enough PPE is suggesting that nurses and doctors are misusing it and overusing it or losing it or stealing it, mm-hmm. which is really fucking crazy and disgraceful. Yeah. I mean, that cover in their ass, basically. Yeah. The coverage thing that, that adds a whole other, obviously element a whole other level to the problem here. But, um, I would think that even in, in your place with the NHS, all these cuts that keep happening to the NHS every time it gets threatened and stuff like, like if, if those weren't happening, maybe the situation would be different as well. Tell me what, um, how do you feel like the, I'm just curious to know. So, because I haven't lived in the States for so long. The last time I was there was uh, 2003. When I, the last time I lived there was 2003. And I don't, I don't think I had health insurance even through my job or anything. But I was like 22, 23 years old and it didn't really occur to me even. I don't think it ever mattered. I had health insurance once for sure. I used to work for Starbucks when I was like 19. And they... They had like benefits and all that stuff. But other than that, I never really thought about it. So it's funny being an adult now, a 40 year old, who's more likely to get sick, more likely to have health problems and thinking back to like, if I'd still lived in the States, what would my situation be? So can you just maybe explain a little bit? Because I think a lot of the people who'd be listening to this would probably be over here in the UK. So what, what do most people in like our friendship group, our age group, our sort of like social grouping, what kind of access to healthcare? do people like us have in the States on average? Or what are the different possibilities? Like maybe starting with yourself. It's a disaster. And like, uh, if you aren't experiencing it, you really wouldn't believe it. How like common it is that people are just spending their large expenditure outside of their, uh, outside of like their housing and maybe their like total food expenditure is your insurance. Mm. Uh, like, I have one of the best situations right now, which is I'm not working, <laughs> so <laughs> I can qualify for government healthcare, which is very good. You yeah. know, it's comprehensive. It covers everything you need. Until I care, you know. These are these are Obamas right here. That's mm-hmm. Almost. Uh, <laughs> I got a pair of no shit they broke in the first week. Oh no. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a uh, audio. Uh, but uh, when I'm not, it's ridiculous. Like you have to pay so much money uh, for like the cheap plans. Uh, you know, you often have to play, pay over a hundred dollars a month. Uh, and like for the more expensive to pay a lot more than that. And then for prescription, sometimes you have to pay like hundreds of dollars a month. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. And like the things that you would think would make 
costs come down don't hmm. um like having a good job you know it seems like the higher your paycheck almost the higher amount of money that goes to yeah. the uh, yeah. goes to parents uh, and people are just constantly posting these ridiculous figures and stuff. And what's sad and what's crazy is that what we call Obamacare uh, significantly increased the prices and they never went down since. Hmm. Um, you know, he created this healthcare exchange and dated that everyone has to use it to buy healthcare. Um, and the idea was that through the magic of market capitalism, creating a marketplace that they would all have to use would force them to compete and force prices down. Right. Um, it's a, it's however, a common neoliberal idea, isn't it? That like, you know, when you subject things to these like market pressures, that competition. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ultimate solution, uh, is that the market cap prices will great equalizer and will yeah. overcome you know that thing deuce false narrative uh but in actuality it's just it's it can be as easy as anything else and usually is done so by those with power um and in this case he didn't do one of the critical steps which was to the government to provide a cheap alternative to therefore drive the prices down and just left all up to the insurance companies so the insurance companies instead of competing against each other and driving each other's price down they all just raised their prices yeah you know they all raised their prices and everyone understood that it's like oh this is out of fear of this new system that is evidently going to drive their prices down so they're jacking down while they can for this like as a chance to kick in <laughs> and uh and uh, it never did. It never brought prices down. Now, albeit, their claim was that it would take 10 years. And it only had about four years, five years, uh, because Trump put an end to it pretty much as soon as he got into office. He ended the health, he ended the, the individual mandate uh, pretty early on. Is the and individual the mandate, is the indi which, explain what the individual mandate is again? That is the there. It forces people to buy health care. Right. OK, so it, it, that's the, the, the bit of the law that means that you have to have health care. You have to have health insurance yeah. the same way. That, that was the, yeah. the carrot to the insurance companies. Right. Lower your prices, but we'll know that everyone buys it. Right. You know, uh, and uh, that's what they did in Massachusetts what Mitt Romney did and was he created this exchange but the thing was critically had a state healthcare program that provided a public alternative should you want a, a cheaper alternative yeah or free alternative uh and that helped the system and they very quickly came 100 percent coverage uh and you know a lot of people uh, you know, looked at this as like the, the market solution, but it didn't work. Right. And it, it wasn't given a chance, but like kind of seemed like it was pretty clear the direction it was going. Uh, and then in the tax bill, he basically ended any vestiges of it that remained like the marketplace and stuff. But now 
because they failed to create any sort of alternative, it now sifts as the only way for a lot of people to get health insurance is to get on this care, you know, Amer- you know, ACA sort of marketplace to buy insurance, but there's no longer the individual mandate. So like, you know, like the claims that these prices are going to be driven down are just completely hollow now. Yeah. And on top of it, Trump, you know, doesn't want it to sink. It's, you know, he has this whole thing about like symbolically not wanting to, you know, give Obama any praise. Like he doesn't want people using the freaking air exchange because it's linked to Obama. So he like limited the amount of time that people can use it instead of like expanding it because we're in a healthcare crisis. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's remarkable. And the fact that, you know, we had a candidate who was running to like, to like completely overhaul them and he was resisting everyone else and he didn't win is remarkable. And the fact that in South Carolina and like in plenty of the states that Biden won, exit polls still indicated that people wanted a complete overhaul of the healthcare system. And they still voted for Biden over Bernie Sanders. It's just like that sort of dissonance is remarkable. And especially since it was the older people, many of whom are on Medicare and Medicaid and understand that the government system is better, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So you brought me around actually now to, to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was uh, I wanted to kind of talk to you about do a little postmortem of the Bernie campaign, because uh, like you said, it seemed you and I were in contact most of the time. I remember asking you for your opinion throughout different parts of the campaign, especially in the run up to uh, to Nevada. That to me was uh, that's when I was asking you the uh, the most questions, because it, it, it seemed to me from over here like the momentum was really almost unstoppable. It seemed like like fairly certain that Bernie was going to, if not, you know, win the nomination, at least get a plurality, and then they would try to rat fuck him at the uh, convention. And we always knew as well, didn't we, that, that South Carolina was more likely than not to go to Biden. But the degree to which, like the, 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 the you know, the, the majority that he had was actually quite amazing I, I was I was amazed. I don't mean that in a positive way, obviously. But what do you think? What do you think happened? Like, uh, what do you what do you think happened? How are you feeling right now about the Bernie campaign? I mean, I'm conflicted. You know, <laughs> it's over and we lost, and it's awful. It's yeah. awful. Uh, there, you know, it's a loss. So I, unlike many people, I'm not an idiot, and I look for the ways that we could have improved. And I see them. There's plenty of them. We clearly failed to get certain messages across, which is remarkable. Like the healthcare message, you know? Yeah. Um, Like the Joe Biden is not a good candidate for minorities to be voting for. And yet they still did just like they did with Clinton last time, even though she was not a good candidate for them to be voting for. Yeah. 
Uh, but like, and like, yes, both of those stand for Bernie to have done a better job of articulating why. Uh, and like, also the notion of like, he should have stood more firmly against the attacks. Like he should have been uh, a little more open in pointing them out and complaining about it. But with these criticisms, the other factors influencing those same turns of events were much stronger in, in terms of the things that we didn't have control over. So it's like difficult to be introspective entirely, and it's certainly difficult to place any sort of blame on the campaign and the people because we largely did the right things. We could have done certain things better, yes, and maybe that would have been the difference, but like there was a lot of other nonsense going on that influenced those same aspects of we could have done better. 100%, 100%. Like if you even think back to Iowa, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I couldn't go 100% and say Iowa was rigged 100%, but I mean, like with 99% certainty, you're looking at it going like the shadow app, the connections of the people who ran the shadow app with uh, Buttigieg's campaign, the whole thing. Shutting, the whole... Down, <clears throat> shutting down the Des Moines Register poll the day before, the day before yeah. because of literally one alleged complaint. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like so many points where it's like, all right, that would have been one night of coverage for Bernie. That would have been one win that they robbed from him. Yeah. Just to and clarify, then, just to clarify, the Des Moines Register poll is traditionally something that comes out the day before the caucus that has almost never been wrong in the history of the, of the Iowa caucus. Like the person sure has never been wrong, has never been wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And the Buttigieg campaign stopped it because they heard reports from one Buttigieg fan that the person mispronounced their name or something. And like when doing the phone poll or like left it out, one of those two, I believe it was mispronounced. Uh, and got, got them to not release the polls, which obviously showed an overwhelming Bernie win uh, the night before because of this one discrepancy. So that was one night of coverage of Bernie being a winner that we didn't get. Right. And then there was the actual Iowa caucus that they didn't, you know, uh, release the numbers because of all the stuff that went down with the shadow app. So that's another night of coverage that not only did Bernie not get, but Pete Buttigieg got to declare himself the winner, you know, like yeah, all yeah. classic bits. CIA playbook. Yeah. <laughs> like he didn't get to declare victory in New Hampshire on the night of either, even though he won. It wasn't until Nevada that he was allowed to have a victory, even though he had had three. Yeah. <laughs> He's like literally going into South Carolina. No candidate in all of history had won all three states. And, and Bernie had done it, and they and he had barely gotten recognition as being the clear front runner, and so it caused a lot of indecision amongst people. They were harping on this Castro thing, you know. Um, it was for some reason sticking, and I think it's just because like a lot of for a lot of people, you know, Castro is still a buzzword, uh, and 
it's just remarkable because again, like all he said was that like Castro, everything Castro did wasn't bad, you know? Right. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. So innocuous. And like, literally there was again, like tons of evidence from Barack Obama saying much more praise upon Castro. Yeah. And then you had the last debate where Joe Biden is just standing there lying. And it's to the point where Bernie is literally like, are you, he first of all directly confronts him. He's like, "Are you honestly saying that you did not say that we should cut Social Security in the '90s?" And he was like, "No, I didn't say that." And Bernie literally was like, "All right, I don't know what to tell you. Go on YouTube, everyone. Go on YouTube. Go on like BernieSanders.com and look it up. There's plenty of footage of him saying this." And the story in the news everywhere. This was like basically unreported. The fact that Bernie Sanders is catching him in a massive lie about old people and health care, which is like relevant to Biden's uh, constituency. Mm. And they're not covering it. And instead, the thing that everyone was covering was they were covering the Fidel stuff. But the main thing they were covering was that Biden promised that he would choose a woman as his vice president. Right, I remember that. I remember that, yeah. yeah. Not even a specific person, just a, a woman. A woman, any woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The ghost of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> you know, Margaret Thatcher, fucking yeah. anyone. They're going to exhume Margaret Thatcher from the grave and they're going to run her as the VP. <laughs> WNBA star Rebecca Lobo, you know, is my, like anyone, any woman is a bigger story than he blatantly lied about social his record on cutting Social Security. Um, yeah, it was just like that moment really crystallized it for me because it was like everyone was covering it. Everyone on my timeline was talking about it. So like all the Warren fans, everyone who was like pissed off, all the, you know, Whatever Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, <laughs> Andrew Yang heads were out there, you know, uh, they, they of course, all immediately dropped out of the race after South Carolina and coalesced around Biden, which, again, you know, without that, Bernie would have won. Without, obviously, without Elizabeth Warren playing the perfect pawn of the powers that be, getting a $10 million ad injection by people who literally put out a statement saying hey we're done with elizabeth warren as soon as super tuesday was done yeah like without that bernie would have won there were like so many instances where it took massive shenanigans and nonsense coordinated by the media the party the other candidates and of course all funded by these interest groups who are desperately trying to stop the one person who poses a real threat to their power structures in Sanders. And it took all of this and time. It took then the coordinated efforts of all the powers that be behind the most institution candidate of all time in Hillary Clinton in order to stop him. And like... I don't know when it's going to be, but I don't think that if we get something even close to the equivalent of a Bernie Sanders, which I don't think we'll get a candidate as good as Bernie Sanders anytime soon, but 
we could get a lesser candidate that becomes a bigger movement because of how awful things are. Uh, so the next time we have an opportunity like this, like people are going to see through even greater levels of this nonsense and we're going to be able to do much better. It's just that I don't know when and if that would be. And I don't know if we're going to have enough time for it to mean anything. Sure. But yeah. uh, here's the thing that I want to ask yeah. you. So in light of all of this, because this is what I've been uh, thinking about loads since since uh, before Bernie even suspended his campaign, because the the question that I asked myself uh, before he sent, suspended his campaign from the time that the coronavirus pandemic really kicked in and there were, were actual lockdown measures when the government finally started to respond and when it looked like, uh, you know, when the, the number of cases were skyrocketing, the number of deaths were increasing daily and it was starting to look really scary and people who previously, you know, a week or two weeks before were, were dismissing it, uh, you know, kind of mirroring what Trump was saying about it being a democratic hoax or just not even taking it as seriously as they should. Once they started really tapping in and, and, and tuning in and really taking it seriously, you, you could tell right off the bat that we were in a, an, a kind of unprecedented situation with regards to the primary and how it's going to work. Because this is what scared me. This is the moment when I realized that we are probably that we were probably going to lose is the fact that Bernie immediately stopped uh, talking like campaign talk and started just trying to make sure that everybody was okay. He was directing all of the campaign's energy into uh, like uh, bringing attention, focusing attention and energy and also uh, fundraising instead of fundraising for yeah. his own campaign was directing. I was receiving the emails and he was talking yeah. about the six new charities like every week or every few days. There were like five or six new charities that had sprung up and he was like asking his supporters, can you please give money to these charities? We need to make sure that people are okay. Meanwhile, you've got people like Joe Biden. You've got people like Andrew Cuomo who are literally just telling people, no, 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 we're going to carry on as normal. We're going to carry on as normal. You're going to go to the, uh, the polls and vote. It'll be fine. You just keep two meters apart. We'll be wiping things down with, uh, with Clorox. It'll be fine. Everybody will be fine. Just make sure you get out and vote. And then what happens in Wisconsin? 3% turnout. Obviously, Biden won. We knew it was going to happen. But for me, it wasn't just the numbers. It was the attitude behind it. Just seeing that these people are willing to fucking kill you. They'll fucking kill you to get yeah. your vote. They just, they literally care more about you as a voter than they do about you as a human being. You aren't a human being to them. You're a fucking number. You're instrumental to them only in as much as they get your vote when they need it. Even if they, even, they don't even care about your vote if they don't need it. There's certain people's votes that they don't even care about, you know, because they knew that the only people who are going to be coming out in the middle of a pandemic were people who were likely to not really be taking it that seriously. And those same people were likely to be voting for Joe Biden. So that to me, once I realized the extent to which they were willing to burn down their own house just to not give Bernie Sanders the keys, that for me was the moment that I, I had to have a reckoning uh, and and say like maybe uh, it, it instilled in me like a, a doubt that uh, I guess I had before to a, a much much smaller extent, which is uh, it, it raises a question really: to what extent does the Democratic Party actually represent a real potential vehicle for change? You know, and that's something I'd like to put to you because it's it's something that I don't know if I have an answer for yet. I, it's maybe too it soon. One, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not a vehicle for change. It's just not much of a 
destruction towards Chang. So there's like the possibility if Joe Biden wins, like there's the possibility, the discussion for how we solve the healthcare crisis could lead towards Medicare for all if we organize for it well enough. Like, you know, there's a possibility that he will appoint good people to the Supreme Court and stuff like that. Uh, mostly, it's just a prevention known evil in that with Trump, good, good positive things like healthcare and like, you know, free tuition and stuff like that are an impossibility. And what you have to do is prevent terrible things like wars and tax hike cuts and stuff like that. Uh, and he and you have to try and prevent him from putting these like 35 year old conservative ghouls on the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. uh, which is really the only thing that is about anymore. These is that because of the inability for to really do anything about right. it, the president uses the Supreme Court nominees. OK, uh, the thing is, let me let me let me let me stop you there for just one the sec. Let me just stop you there for one sec. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on that. Just uh, but I, I'm not I'm not sure. But I'm not sure if I. I have a statement though. That, like it's not a finished thought. Okay. Possibility is there. I'm good. However, like what I fully like at least this time come around to realizing is that you cannot ignore the obvious long-term consequence. Like, we, Trump, because of Obama. Right. If we elect him and we allow him to be a worthless, listless, neoliberal piece of bridge that he's been, we will get a worse reaction to him afterwards. So it's like, yeah. yes, right. the possibility that in years i will be fighting sort of good instead of some sort to stop some sort of evil is greater if biden isn't but also so is what i believe to be the possibility of a worse outcome four years from now so very, very difficult question to answer but i'm currently scared of the four years from now outcome that i am of having fight trump right as terrible as it would be because it threatens the very fabric republic uh think having someone worse than trump would almost guarantee its end right so let me let me just let me just interject there for one sec because that's the, so this is the thing you've brought up like two good points really so one the first thing i was was asking you because because you've 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 succinctly kind of presented us with this dilemma here so number one we realize that biden is never going to be uh, a good candidate. I, he's never going to be a good candidate. The, the, the thing that he actually offers as a prospect is just a, the, a breathing space to regroup. Now there's a cost to that. I think I'm trying to rearticulate what you said here just to make sure that I understand it and everything. Yeah. And, and, and it gives us a chance to regroup and, and to, get, to get our shit together. But that comes with a cost or, or a potential cost. There's a danger that after Biden uh, you know, something worse could come. And this is something that I'm also afraid of. And it, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think, because here, here's the thing, because a lot of people who I respect and admire and, um, and whose opinions I value 
uh, are torn here. Like half of them are are like, fuck this, I'm not voting in November because the Democratic Party has just always held us hostage and said, you know, you've got to vote for this guy or else you get the worst guy. And uh, they, they said, you know, what difference does it make? And then the other half are like, you know, as bad as this is, we've got to we've got to try to, you know, just make sure that Trump isn't president for another four years. And unfortunately, I don't see very many of them framing it the same way that you are, because I think that taking the long view is going to be important. And so what I want to know is what, what it seems like to me, the most important thing to do in either case is one of the things that this primary has shown is that the whole entire game of electoral politics uh, is predicated not only on having a good candidate who can articulate, uh, you know, meaningful progressive messages and also mobilize like a, a, a working class voter base, but you also have to have a grassroots movement of people involved at grassroots level who are not just voting every four years, but actually involved, invested in some way, not even just giving money, not even just like showing up at rallies and things like that, but being in some ways involved and changed, you know, they need to be joining uh, trade unions, they need to be uh, members of like community groups, they need to be active within their communities and build community power to be able to build power at a national level. That's what I think. I believe that. That, 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 that's absolutely true. Yeah. I completely agree. And that's what's so special about the campaign, the, the Bernie campaign. Right, right. Is that it, like he came in with, uh, with the biggest, not only network of campaign activists and stuff like that, these people since the last elections have, like he activated so people to involved in politics get involved in organizing of various sorts to uh run for office but certainly increasing awareness of uh unions and whatnot getting more unions to understand that this sort of socialism is for them uh, and it's a real one uh, yeah and 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 for you know, me it, though but what what so one of the things that i think that this that one of the lessons that we can learn from this is that no electoral uh, strategy, no electoral block is really sufficient on its own without a grassroots movement to undergird it, right? So that's that's one of the kind of things that I've learned from this. And and even if you have those two together, I feel like there's still some sort of other component that's missing because that's what Bernie provided us with. I mean, we had a, a great candidate who could articulate things well. You know, Bernie is great. He's charismatic. He's well known. He's got name recognition. People like him. People trust him. They know where he stands. He's got a long record that's consistent. And he's got a grassroots movement behind him. And he's been proven to be able to win elections. He's probably the only one who could have won against Trump. I doubt that Biden is going to win. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. But the thing is, is that even so, we all knew. No, None of us are fucking babes in the woods here. We all knew that going into this the media were going to just absolutely shit on us and that they were going to do whatever they could to rip them apart. We knew that the the DNC and the, the ghouls in the party were going to be throwing everything they had. They're going to throw the whole kitchen cupboard at trying to stop him from winning the nomination. You know, we always knew this and still somehow we weren't able to overcome that, even knowing the second time around, you know, 2016 and 2020. So what I'm asking really is I, I want to know from you, because the stakes are so high, as you know, we've just established, because like either way is sort of either way, like another four years of Trump is bad, but another uh, but four years of Biden, 
just having like fucking baby brain and eventually just fizzling out is is also potentially lethal because what comes after could literally be the end of the republic so i want to know what you think because i'm a little undecided at the moment where is the best place for people to put their energies where should the focus be should it be on the grassroots or should it be on building some sort of electoral movement or should it be some synthesis of both and how do we go about doing that like what do you think i know that's a huge question but i'm curious to know what you think about that uh it's definitely should be a synthesis of both but it needs to rely much more heavily on the grassroots than it has been mm. especially that we have to start without this unique uh public servant to lead us by example in bernie right uh we're gonna need someone be that like someone like an aoc or just someone mm -hmm. take the mantle of what we legitimize as an existing grassroots up organization and realistically that's going to take a lot of time i imagine a lot of time uh, yeah hmm. uh that's not a four-year product you know right right because if you realistically want to start it then you have to start getting people elected various offices starting at the lower level and you need to start to organize in the inner cities in the ways that groups with any political mindset have not been doing right uh like the last group that like was truly doing it was acorn which was destroyed uh you know during uh which was allowed to be destroyed uh several years ago um so hold on you have to clarify that for me but, because i'm i'm like a, a member of living rent and we have like a we have a sort of association with acorn so I'm just curious to know what you mean by they were destroyed because uh, over there. Well, yeah, they were a grassroots organizing group. They would focus a lot on getting people in the inner cities registered to vote. Uh, that was like the big thing that they did. They were like one of the biggest groups for getting poor people registered to vote, and it's sure. been a big thing that the Democratic has missed since they've been been gone. Um, but they would do all sorts of organizing in the inner city in ways that groups that I've worked with wouldn't, you know, and we'd have to work with Acorn to, to get certain things. Um, and then they got taken down. I don't remember exactly when it was. I believe it was, it was during the, uh, the 2000 election. Um, it's something actually happened to a friend of mine who was organizing for the group that I worked with uh we we into sweets to organize for whoever the eventual democratic nominee was going to be um and so we would go into swing states and like open up offices to like register to vote and whatnot and we would hire people as staff to go out and read people to vote and you know there would be like a quota of like people you would need to rent in a week you know like just like there is for canvassing and fundraising and stuff um and so people would lie they would make up fake names somehow just like fill out the mm. fake forms and turn them and then what we do is we check them and check which ones check out and which ones don't and by law, we are required to turn them all in, but we put them in separate piles 
of like these are not real you know <laughs> yeah 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 um and you fire the person who did it and that's what she did because our laws are like we're weird and fucked up she still got in trouble for it uh and got food and stuff for turning in these registration voter registration forms that had fake people on it which right. is not her, her fault but like she is the one that pointed out discrepancy and turned it into the registrar of voters but she still got in trouble for it hmm. now this same thing happened a few weeks later in an acorn office um but you know they got much more blame for it because republicans were trying to there was voter fraud going on all the time when there isn't because they're trying to pass voter id laws and laws to make it more difficult to vote so that they can suppress the vote right there's that there's voter fraud happening when there isn't and so they were all over this like this democratic organization is getting voter fraud uh when in actuality it was just someone that worked in one of their offices again they were with that pointed it out so they got in a huge bunch of trouble for it and then this guy james o'keefe who you may have heard about he's this like right-wing provocateur <laughs> douche who tries to do these like sting operations on left-wing groups and he would be a complete and utter clown probably uh still in jail now if it wasn't for this one success he had where dressed up as a pimp and took this person to an acorn uh pretending to be a prostitute and wanted to like get legal help for them or something like that hmm. and the acorn person helped them as a community organizer like tried to answer their questions and like helped them along and was going to like give them advice and stuff like that at no point broke the law and like was very much like you know uh basically like the ideal of what you would want in a person in that situation it's yeah. like do as much as you can without like you know blah blah, blah. and they have trouble for it and eventually they got defunded by a whole bunch of groups by like any federal money they were getting wait they why essentially why what was the actual because reasoning behind it? Fake scandals, fake nonsense scandals hmm. took down this organization. And because the Democrats suck, they rolled over and allowed it to happen. Yeah. Just like they were doing, just like they've been doing to Planned Parenthood. But there's at least a little bit of strength behind the just keep Planned Parenthood funded, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like that's a chopping block too, because Democrats are unwilling to actually stand up for even the one issue they're supposed to be solid on, which is yeah. the right to choose. So wait, so how, so tell me, so this, the moral of this story then is like, so you think that I, like you, you're in agreement with me that we need to build the grassroots community led movements and uh, smaller politics, you know, local politics, bef like uh, we need to focus on both electoralism and uh, building grassroots working class power. But you think that we need to focus maybe slightly more on the grassroots. And uh, you think that like the, the yeah. fall of organizations like ACORN, they, that something needs to take its place then. There's like a vacuum now and we need to like fill that. The electoral victories have to come and can only come with the organ strength and that's the only reason that bernie sanders was successful right uh and that's 
always said. That's what he said in the very first debate when they were like, what is the one impact you want your presidency to have? He was like, I want my presidency the impact that the people are expressing themselves again, and that will be requisite of my ability to win, be that the people have come together to get me elected. Right. And then that message for the future fights we have against the actual powers that be that control things, which is the military industrial complex, hmm. the healthcare insurance, pharmaceutical industry, you know, whatever it may be, Wall Street, like these are the people that have been calling the shots in American policy. Uh, and to take one, you know, there's no other powerful interest that supports the people, the people. Right. And it would be great if we could just magically organize everyone around political ideas, but that's not really going to happen. Like we need grassroots organization organizations that practically affect people on the grassroots level. And so then they will get behind it. And what I'm saying with ACORN is that they don't really exist properly right now. Certainly not in any sort of large scale statewide or intrastate, certainly intrastate sort of manner. Like the closest things that we have, thing like the Working Families Party, hmm. uh, and even they have a lot can can be doing a lot better, you know, than they yeah. are right now. It's sad that the best that we have, and they're only in a couple states. Um, but we need to we need to be organizing on the local level much more. We need to be promoting unions because labor needs to come together. That's the great unifier. And we're allowing ourselves to just be trampled over because we're not unified, not on the local level in our local unions and not as, not obviously as a, as a working, you know, labor move. Right. As a block. Uh, yeah. So I think like that, I agree with you 100% on this. This is what the, the, the newsletter that I, that I write, the last one that I wrote talked about this, because I feel like it's the same thing here in the ashes of defeat to the Tories. And the, and and even, I don't know if you heard about the dossier that was leaked of, uh, yeah. the, you know, that showed the, the obviously that the, the right wing of the Labour Party had just gone to such unbelievable lengths since 2016 to, to hamstring that, Corbyn, you that, know? That dossier is one of the most relevant pieces of political that exists for people right now, but obviously people aren't going to absorb the right message from it but like that is what's happening right now right is that the very people you claim are here to save you from the bad guys are shooting you foot so that they can remain in their position of subservient power exactly but and the thing is that I, I i've been trying to i've been trying to make the case here that people need to get organized through uh like like labor unions and uh, and also like uh, the tenants unions here in Glasgow is really good. It's called uh, Living Rent, and uh, they they basically fight for tenants' rights. And organizations like that, I think, have the most crucial part to play now because if if for no other reason than that that they're the only existing structures in place with any kind of momentum at all, labor unions and and other community led organizations like that. Anything that you can get involved in. I feel like you have to get involved in because yeah. what other structure is there for you to join? What other vehicle is there to build working class power? What other structure is in place for people to actually start getting ahead of the game, moving the momentum? Because like you said, it's going to take so long anyway 
that we're going to have to start from not necessarily scratch, but not you know not far from scratch. So I, yeah. but I'm I'm curious to know what you think. Like, uh, so here in the UK, uh, like I we've been trying a few of us at the at the place where we work in the in the grocery store have been trying to like unionize the workplace you know it's one of the things that we've been trying to do and it, the initial push kind of in like the late summer early autumn of last year was not that successful because we have like a sprawling workforce it's a big place that doesn't just do like a, a retail grocery they also have growers they have people work on the farm they have people in like the packing sheds they have like an importing side of the business a wholesale side so there's all these different people in all these different areas we don't all speak to each other all the time and some of the people who weren't working like in the shop were more uh, you know they weren't really sure and and you could tell that they didn't really quite understand what it meant to be part of a union because all they thought was that it was like some sort of really kind of like radical adversarial thing where we're going to start like fights with the boss and you're trying to explain to them yeah it's a it's just a way for us to collectively bargain and it's not like uh you don't need to be in some sort of dispute to be in a union you don't need to feel like your boss is an asshole who's going to fuck you over at any available opportunity to be in a union you know what i mean like it was it was a yeah. really quite disheartening thing to like have to try to explain it was crazy like uh I, it, it's but but that now i think if it's any consolation it's just as difficult to organize unions when the boss is an asshole <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah yeah i know yeah but i i wanted to know like if you if you felt like I, is this a similar thing or afraid of speaking up getting involved because they don't want to be singled out by the bosses for whenever they do have some sort of grievance or something like that. Hmm. Uh, very difficult. Last year, uh, uh, with unions, because we had a very high union loss last year, uh, which basically made it that you don't have to be a member of... A, a public sector union like public sector unions uh if they existed and you wanted to work that public sector you to be a part of you pay dues right uh, you know it's like you know one of our few <laughs> existing quality labor laws and then they were able to pass they've been trying to pass for many years now which undid that it creates what's called at will employment uh, and so unions, they're like numbers pretty instantly decimated because of it. And so I around with some, you trying to get people basically sign on to more specific contracts that say like, even if it's not mandated, I apparently be part of this union. And so I was trying to get many people signed up for these new things before this Janus law passed, uh, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to get people. It's like people, even people in public sector unions yeah. are still very afraid of even seeming like rocking boats. Right. Right. But, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I, the big thing that, I, and it's weird because I don't know what to say about you over there, but over here, like I said, with all the healthcare issues, the big thing moving forward would be organizing Medicare for all, organizing around solving the healthcare crisis, and then having organizations, having communities coming together, 
having kids like in support of in support of the notion of bold care for all if there was some group that had established itself as the medicare for all group uh that people believed uh as like the group on that issue and they came out and said hey we love one plans and absolutely none of them actually mean it except for bernie sanders uh might have changed things in right. this election yeah but like that exists and so like moving forward we know that that's going to be a major issue so we need to organize around that yeah like it's to be an integral part of the union organizing movement because healthcare is one of the primary things that unions uh organize for people is mm. they organize the care through their employers and that's why there was like a row between larger unions the culinary union in uh in las vegas in Canada. Bernie Sanders is because the culinary union felt threatened that like their legitimacy as the people running this union was threatened by the notion of giving everyone health. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because that's one of their like, leverage. One that's one of their, their, yeah. That's one of their mechanisms for leveraging with, when yeah. with bosses and, so, and the government. Yeah. Before the, the and like yeah. there were another Point where people were able to attack Bernie Sanders for the notion of giving people health care, you know, and like they would say it on the debate stage that like you, Bernie, want to take away people's health care and like no moderators, like no one would come to like his defense other than himself and early Elizabeth. Uh, that like, He's not trying to weigh your health. He's trying to give everyone health care. In order to do that, he has to get rid of the piece of garbage health care that absolutely none of you actually want. It's just that you're terrified of losing. Right, right. Yeah. After all of this, then, after everything that we've said, what do you think, then? Like, do, what, So the push needs to be, like, what are the actual things we need to do, then? We need to try to get people involved. We need to get them to, like, we need to increase trade union membership. We need to get people involved, then, yeah? And just try to get them actually working with unions and being involved. Well, first of all, just joining. Yeah. Uh, and they need to understand that uh, they shouldn't trust the Democratic establishment. They shouldn't trust these people. Um, which, you know, hopefully, is something that impressed upon people. Like, I think, or come away from this. Uh, not trusting the Democratic Party more, not trusting the caucus, hating the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire go first. Uh, hey, they're going to eventuate the, the uh, Electoral College even more than they do. And like in a reasonable world, this would be the last time we suffered a lot of those things. I don't think that's the case yet. And also, the problem is that people see things like this exposed uh it doesn't always come with a schism down action to change it usually comes with alienation and apathy right, right which only benefits the opponents uh who don't want you participating to begin with right again right, exactly. hmm. worst case thing that uh 
a Biden president will just cause people to not believe thing anymore, which yeah. is what but, the villains. Want. But this is this is what I mean is like this is why I think it's important to try to to try to make the case for people to join unions to get involved and also to maybe to try to see that maybe their 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 best hope at things being better is. You know, maybe maybe is there a way, do you think, that we can capitalize on some of that apathy about politics without losing people altogether? Like, is it possible to to translate the disenchantment with politics uh, into like a, a sort of energy uh, from like the, a non-political route, like being member of a union? Because like that's the thing that like I'm asking myself in concrete terms, like what can I do now? in the ashes of, of these two massive defeats. What can I do? And I feel like the only thing that gives me a sense of uh, maybe even something close to hope is that the COVID-19 thing is just making everything so crazy. And all these, especially younger people, people in like their, their early mid twenties or even their late twenties, who maybe have not really come to a sort of political consciousness yet. You know, or if they have like a semi-formed political consciousness, they don't really know the facts. They just have like an instinctual politics. Uh, and, and now that they're coming to work and being like, holy shit, things are so fucked up. Like maybe at my job, there isn't enough uh, PPE or my bosses don't seem to really care that much about me. Like these these fears that they have, these these anxi these anxieties and these like concerns that are justified. Can, can that energy being produced from that sort of anxiety be turned constructively and profitably towards organizing, you know, like maybe because a lot of those people that I know yeah. would think that politics is bollocks anyway. It's just bullshit. Like, I don't give a fuck about any of that stuff. But maybe, maybe if they can see in concrete terms and I'm trying to think of like, what are real steps that I can take to make people uh, you know, take action, maybe just like even just start by joining a union, because for some people, 11 pounds a month, which is what like a Unite membership costs here is like yeah. maybe prohibitive to them. Like it's not a lot of yeah. money, but maybe that's prohibitive to them. You know, or what I found is people think that it is like I found large percentage of the people who were hesitant or who actually like left the union and stuff like that and stopped paying dues were yuppies young <laughs> young yeah. like couples like clear people who are like just out of college and are worried about every expenditure and so they're like doing like these cost benefit analyses in their heads and they're yeah. like wait a minute, you want me to pay 11 pounds for what like you know like the possibility that we may one day need to organize against the boss or like something want me to pay $11 a month to maintain the contract I have? Like, I kind of already have the contract, so yeah. <laughs> cost-benefit analysis and say I don't need to pay that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's what I was finding. It was a lot of, like, because I was organizing a lot of people who work in schools, so it was a lot of, like, young women. Right. Uh, yeah, so I was getting that energy. But, yeah, I think... COVID is going to have organizing's work cut out for it. Like people are going to be, and are already obviously taking advantage of so much uh, there that is going to be in a sense restructured 
Right. And we need to make sure that it's restructured in the right way or in good ways, protect people from being exploited. And then also, like, we're going to have to support each other to great extents because, like, people are going to have a real hard time recovering from this uh, over the next year, like, recovering economic stuff like that. Right. Because it's it's going to be a lot like the 2008 financial crisis even worse in that the a lot of the jobs that disappear are not coming back uh mm. and new jobs that are going to be created are not going to provide all of wealth for e- either individuals or the state the previous ones were so now state governments and certainly Connecticut's got this coming are going to face financial troubles too like this is going to lead to even economic hardships even though we were headed for it to begin with uh it's bad it's a real bad situation right it will define uh the next several years um and how we get through it and come out of it is going to define what happens afterwards uh so yeah organize um Organize around keeping communities strong and building community and 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 people power against institutions that are going to attempt to use this situation to hurt more control already right. have been. But I'm uh, curious to know. I'm curious to know like what you think that means in um not to not to like uh, labor this phrase here, but like in concrete terms, like what do you think that that means? Like what can people do? Like what kind of so you think like joining a union that's specific to your to your job is probably a good first step. I know that uh, here in the UK, obviously, there's there's different um, tenants unions as well that are really good because uh, because they tend to be smaller, more grassroots, more community based. They have the room to be more radical. They have the room to be more outspoken. They don't have to moderate as much because uh, they're not in like big deals with governments and, and they tend to actually be able to affect change. Uh, like here in Glasgow, Living Rent, I know, is able ha- has had a lot of successes. And when they lobby hard, when they put pressure on the government, it really does work. Like they, they expanded, there was a three-month um, eviction ban here. You know, you couldn't, like a landlord couldn't evict a tenant uh, for three months. And they, they pressed that to beyond, to six months now. But even so, I mean, that obviously, at the end of six months, that given, I mean, like, let's just say best case scenario, we get over the pandemic six months time, there's going to be people facing rent arrears, you know, they're going to be like, uh, the, the landlord is going to say to them, you know, well, you've had your break. So now I need you to pay, but they might not have a job, you know, like you said, a lot of these jobs are not coming back. So I'm curious yeah. to know, like, how, if, if you've got like a large number of suddenly unemployed people, uh, like what, how, what can, it, what, what can we, what can we do about them? What argument can we be taking to them? What, uh, what, what argument can we be pressing into use for these people? I mean, what is like a useful thing to tell these people? The big, the big opportunity we have to make a particular big argument right now that would benefit us in many ways forward is the notion that everyone's labor is valuable. Hmm. Uh, it's an incredible socialist, communist notion uh, and it kind of undercuts all the things like, therefore, human beings have, you know, the value enough to have health care as a right, to have the ability to live 
and like have just as dignity as everyone else. Uh, at least in this country, we very much look down on lower workers and therefore don't protect them in, in, in ways that higher wage workers do. Like why don't lower wage workers have benefits? Uh, why are there such low wage workers? Why don't we right. have a higher wage? Right. And a lot of it just comes from even the casual notion that like, oh, the person who works at a fast food place, this garbage truck worker, this janitor, these are the lowest rungs of society. And, you know, with hard work, they will move up and out of those terrible positions. But it's like, first of all, the understanding that maybe not, maybe that's not the case, the right. latter. But now certainly understanding that, these are the only people keeping our society together right now. Right, exactly. It exactly. And so their worth is being expressed to everyone right now. And so making sure that people understand that lesson deeply, making sure they understand that this doesn't just mean that you should clap and applaud for them at 7 p.m. every night. Right, right. This means you should support the notion of livable wages for all workers. Exactly. This means. You should support healthcare as a right so that people can live, you know, like, uh, so like these are definite opportunities that we can use this crisis to like, you know, if they're going to come around, if we're going to get our eggs smashed, we better make some omelets. You know? <laughs> yeah. So basically you're saying that this is an opportunity to make the bigger arguments, to make the bigger cases for these yeah. things. And I think you're right. And on the but back my, of that. This is going to come in the face of massive unemployment right people being that much more desperate to suck up to bosses that much more afraid of unions so like nothing is like easy it's all going to of continue course. to be a struggle but like there are opportunities to still advance things forward and i'm actually you know i'm optimistic that the general arc of history bends towards justice as martin luther king said mm. uh or Ben Swords Freedom or whatever that whatever that guy. He talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on and on. I, All right. I think that I think for me, like the interesting thing. Line, yeah. uh, the interesting thing for me is that thing, he's we're gonna but, uh, have these opportunities to make big arguments, like yeah, you yeah. said. So so I believe that eventually things will turn out positively and that we will be able to the more these bad things happen, the more we can use them as as teaching moments to to, to show people the ways that we shouldn't be accepting them as our only reality. It's just that tick-tock, tick-tock, climate change is always there, and we only have so much time to do that, and I would have felt much more comfortable that it was possible to overcome if we had managed to get Bernie Sanders elected right now. Right, and in the ashes of those defeats, I think one of the most important things that I'm identifying from what you're saying and that I also think is making these bigger arguments, making these more, uh, like, it's easier to make a coherent argument about these, like, big structural structural critiques when you've got, like, concrete examples in front of you, like things crumbling. You know, as soon as all of these cuts to Social Security became obvious when we needed Social Security. So suddenly you've got the structural critique of austerity. There, uh, a concrete example, 
for all to see. And I think now that things are getting so desperately bad for so many people, you've got like the skyrocketing unemployment, you've got the crisis of tenants not being able to pay their rent, potentially not ever being able to pay their rent again uh, for the foreseeable future if their jobs disappear or if they've been furloughed and then the jobs just end when the, 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 the government uh, subsidies end as well. So one of the things that I'm hoping happens is that the government here in the UK and also in the US is in some ways just forced to build new structures of uh, safety nets, social security, things like that. The, the more There need to be more like programs to make sure that people don't just end up like dead or on the street. And what I think, the only reason I have for hope is that the degree to which they build these things is the degree to which people get a taste of it again, like a pre-neoliberal uh, life, uh, the world as it was, you know, before 40 years ago, before Reagan, before the rise of neoliberalism, when they've just axed everything and financialized everything and turned everything into like just mechanisms that the market act on, you know, that's for me. The, the, so in sum, basically, the degree to which we have structures built in place to deal with this crisis, when the crisis is over, it's a harder sell to then say, well, now we're going to dismantle them, you know? I mean, I think that if they have to build new forms of social security, it's going to be such a hard argument for them to to justify taking them away again, because people will get a taste of that. So that's what I think is going to be another thing we've got to prepare ourselves for, is making sure that we can say, hey, well, hold on there, you know, these things are good. We like them. We want to keep them. There's no reason that they should be temporary. There's no reason that, uh, you know, some sort of, Money if you've lost your job or if your company can't afford to pay you and they furlough you, you know, these things, they should they should just always be there. Um, if I can't uh, afford to pay for, for health care and you've had to step in this whole time, I mean, why, why are you going to take it away now? I mean, and also what about people who weren't affected by COVID? What about people with cancer, with diabetes, with heart disease? You know, and the same goes with, with rent. I mean, if, 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 the, if and, the landlords are, you know... Like doing a better job than we did, although, like, I don't know how we make this argument better than we have been of reminding people that we don't have a scarcity of resources. We just have... A scarcity a of resources? Is that what you said? That are, yeah, we do not have a scarcity of resources. Right. We just have a few evil people that are hoarding all of the resources. Right. Namely, money and, you know, like, that is not at all ethical. And like the, you know, just like the taxes that Jeff Bezos re realistically should have paid on the money he's earned in the last five years uh, could have paid for all these crises having now. Uh, so like that's obviously an important point to make, too. Uh, I hopefully will be able to continue to make as this moves forward is to like impress upon people just how much wealth we're talking about when we're talking about people with tens or more of billions of dollars and just how many of your and the world's ills could be solved by, you know, putting that money into action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Yeah, that's true. Cool. All right. Well, I think, um, I think maybe we've come to like a natural conclusion here. <laughs> um, what do you think? Is there anything else you want to say? Um, that, uh, you know, just generally have to keep, we have to fighting. Um, we have to keep fighting. Yeah. Uh, 
even if it seems bleak, even if it seems like uh, we're not going to win the battle in the end, in the long term, there's way going on. There's way too many people suffering who can be alleviated, have their suffering alleviated through people's small victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and work out well, figure it out. We'll get a vaccine for climate change and mm-hmm. we'll be able to, you know, Elon Musk our way out of this or something, you know. Uh, but yeah. not. But like either way, we should keep pushing forward because like that really is the one thing that my 15 years of a- activism and stuff have really impressed upon me is to not underestimate what could p- potential possibilities of the future. Not underestimate how bad things can get because I've continually proven wrong on that front uh, the last 10 years, 20 years. <laughs> um, but certainly the last four years, I've learned to not underestimate how good things can get either. Like both 2016 and this year, I did not would do as well as we did with the Bernie camp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I'm not as much as I'm appalled by seeing things play out i'm not at all shocked like this was always be the most thing to happen it's just that it's so when you see the possibility of this not being the case you know yeah yeah. hold that that things could turn out for the better and with i've learned to not you know you underestimate how bad things can get you can't underestimate how stupid things can get uh now with covid it's like you can't assume anything is given you know we like the the the, is there going to be an election in november i'm not betting on it yeah yeah it's hard to know isn't it yeah i mean if you're honestly asking me to bet my last 11 pounds uh i might honestly know Mm. i think that the election happening the first tuesday of november is less likely than it is than it is to happen so i don't know things are very unknown but you know it's trending people are getting more and more with every defeat of bernie sanders he gets more (laughs) and more more and more people that i know that were already you know good people political people even get involved you know like that's something should not go unsaid like i have a lot of political friends they were not politically active until 16 you know like i have people that i protest that i did all sorts of things with they were not involved in electoral politics until their mid-30s when this guy bernie ran and put together this movement at this time and now those same people who got involved for the first time four years ago time are organizing you know so they're organizing who yeah knows what they're going to be next time who knows what we're going to have like i know plenty of people that have run for office are in office because they became political on the first bernie Sanders campaign you know it's all the chips are all play yeah we it's do. true it's Maybe. true yeah, yeah. so you know, Trump gets elected, we fight. If Biden gets elected, we fight. Yep. 
Cool, man. And if Bernie Sanders elected. We still fight, yeah. <laughs> yeah.